This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the June 18th, 1942 broadcast of the NBC Morning News. It includes remote updates from Australia, Stockholm, and London. Plus news from the home front. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, everyone. To bring you the latest news from NBC reporters on the spot, we present our regular morning World News Roundup. And now, our first to Australia. This is Sydney Albright calling from Australia. The front pages of today's Sydney papers devote very little space to the Australian war front. The ceasefire raids in the northern area are both conducted with such monotonous regularity that the daily communiques, except for a few figures, appear to be almost carbon copies of preceding days. The latest communique, however, differs in that Darwin had a raid-free day. This time, Port Morrisby was the objective of 18 heavy Japanese bombers with an escort of nine fighter planes which attacked the city, causing slight damage before being driven off. The text of today's communique is Northeastern Sector, Port Morrissey. Eighteen heavy bombers escorted by nine Type Zero fighters attacked the harbor area. Damage and casualties were slight. All fighters intercepted and destroyed one enemy bomber and one fighter without loss to themselves. Lay Salamore. Further reports from the Allied attack on June 16th shows that our bombers shot down three additional enemy fighters in combat making a revival total of seven enemy casualties. That is the end of the communique. For some time past, early fighter planes have been engaged in the assault on Morrisby. Yesterday's word suggests that the Japanese have reinforced their northern air bases with bombers, which is an indication that further offensive operations may be expected. General MacArthur's faith in Australia was displayed in a new manner today when he subscribed 1,000 pounds to this country's second war loan. I know nothing more ethically satisfying or more economically sound than to subscribe to the future of Australia, MacArthur declared after signing the check. Substantially, it represented his military pay since Japan attacked the Philippines. 
The general telephoned the Prime Minister, Mr. Curtin, last night and stated his wish to make the subscription. He made the decision spontaneously, following the arrival of his paycheck earlier in the day. General McArthur and Mr. Curtin drove together to the bank. News that the general was coming had spread, and a large crowd assembled and cheered the two leaders as they entered. While calling the nation to task for not wholeheartedly supporting the war line, the Prime Minister, in his broadcast last night, apparently had the full endorsement of General MacArthur when he stated that Australia faces invasion and the accompanying wars, just as surely as the Russian people are experiencing them today. One observer suggested that although the government has been informed of the gloomy outlook in Libya and the grave threat to Russia, it believed that operations to the north of Australia were eradicating Japanese tanks in that area. Unexpected ferocity of Japanese counter-raids, however, and the appearance of the latest South Zero fighters show that Japan is fully possessed of the importance of the Australian theater. This is Sydney Albrock, signing off from Sydney and Australia. Now uh, we have a news bulletin here in our own newsroom in New York. Victoria, British Columbia. Canadian Air Force squadrons and anti-aircraft batteries have joined United States forces defending Alaska. This is announced by the Dominion Chief of Staff, General Kenneth Stewart. He says the Canadian forces have been in Alaska for some days. It's the first time of the war that Canadian and United States forces have operated jointly. From Pearl Harbor, the full statue of the Jap defeat in the Coral Sea and at Midway is becoming more apparent. The Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet, Admiral Chester Nimitz, has revealed new details, and we'll hear those later on during the day. Well, now turning from the South Pacific, we take you now to the shores of the Baltic Seas for news from neutral Stockholm, Sweden. Go ahead, Stockholm. Hello, New York. This is David Anderson speaking from Stockholm. According to reports from Berlin today, the Germans are counting on an almost immediate Japanese declaration of war on Russia. We've heard the Chinese speak of this threat before, but this is one of the first times that such a turn of events was forecast from the German capital. It is pointed out in these reports that such a move on the part of the Japanese would mean a tremendous relief for the Germans in their so-called summer offensive. Apparently, great importance is attached in Berlin to the Japanese landings on the Aleutian Islands. These say the reports have placed the Americans, quote, in a confused situation, unquote. According to the same sources, the only way that the Americans could take a crack at the Japanese is for them to dispose air and naval bases in Vladivostok and other Russian bases. And what's more, such an American move, they fear, may come at a time when it would be highly unfavorable for the Japanese. It is further pointed out that the famous pact of friendship between Russia and Japan, signed by Matsuoka in April last year, is now worth no more than the paper it's written on. It will only remain valid as long as the Japanese want it to be. On the other hand, the Axis have constantly spoken of coordinating their efforts, and the most effective manner of doing this from a German standpoint would be in a Japanese declaration of war on Russia. From the North African war zone today, German reports are indicating the tremendous German difficulties in carrying through their advance. Water supplies seem to furnish one of the most important problems but there are indications that the fighting morale of the Italians is dwindling. In the recent attack on Beer Hikane, Rommel himself had to advance to the forward positions, calling out Avanti constantly to the Italian Trieste division. Swedish correspondents in Berlin are indicating that there are about two or three weeks of fighting still left in the desert 
before the summer heat forces a stop in offensive operations. This is David Anderson returning you now to New York. Next, a first-hand report on the activities of our British allies from our NBC reporter in London. This is London. John McVeigh speaking. It's officially stated today that British forces have been withdrawn from El Adam and Sidi Rezeg. British mobile forces are still harassing the enemy south and west of Tobruk. It's assumed in London that the, that the British have also evacuated Akroma. It isn't known here whether any definite attack on the Tobruk perimeter defenses has developed yet. As far as military quarters know, communications between Tobruk and the frontier are still open. Axis claims to have established air superiority in Libya are refuted. It's still said that the British have had air superiority since the beginning of the Libyan campaign. But this doesn't seem to have affected the course of the battle. Today's official report makes it clear to observers here that Rommel is making good his expected threat to cut off Tobruk's land communications with Egypt. El Adam and Sidi Rezeg covered these communications, and there's no news here as to what forces, if any, still lie between Rommel and the coast. One British military expert thinks the British may soon find themselves back in the Solum position, from which they started on November the 18th. Much will depend on whether General Ritchie was able to get the bulk of his armored forces back to the Egyptian border before Rommel could cut them off. If they're to the west of Rommel thrust and are now penned up in Tobruk, they'll have lost the value of mobility. If Rommel knew he had no flanking threat to fear, he could ring Tobruk with tanks and anti-tank guns, and a British attempt to break out unsupported would be difficult. British bombers from Britain last night raided the German submarine base at Saint-Nazaire and airfields in occupied territory. The story is being told in Britain today of how the standard of a Polish regiment dedicated in the Krakow Cathedral hundreds of years ago reached Britain. The regiment escaped from Poland to France. When the Battle of France had been lost, the colonel ordered a sergeant and four men to bury the flag. The sergeant was captured by the Germans and sent to a prison camp in, in occupied France. Months later, he escaped from a train that was taking him to Germany. He went to a place he'd buried the flag, dug it up, washed it, and started taking flag and stuff topped with a metal Polish eagle through occupied France. Once he collided with a German officer in a cafe, and the eagle dug the German in the ribs. The sergeant apologized, and the German walked on. Now the standard is in Scotland, with a sealed metal box containing the regiment's records. When the war ends, the box will be opened, and the story of the sergeant added. From Britain, it's interesting to note reports from America claiming that there's a slight lessening of the antagonistic feeling in Washington to Laval, the Vichy Premier. It's said that the worst fears about Laval have proved unfounded. This report comes at a time when information is reaching authoritative quarters in London that Laval is helping the Germans draft slave labor from France into Germany. Laval is closing down hundreds of factories in France which aren't producing goods of use to the German war effort. The workers from the shut-down factories are sent to Germany to help fill the German need for manpower. Every week, slave trains, trains, and it's no exaggeration to call them that, are leaving France for Germany. The workers have no choice. They have to go to Germany or starve, because Laval won't give them any unemployment relief. The German policy toward France is similar to that followed in other German-controlled areas. In Warsaw last Tuesday, a thousand Poles were rounded up and shipped to Germany to work. The same story comes from Belgium, Holland, and Norway, where, if workers aren't sent to Germany, they're forced to work on German fortifications in their own country. The London Daily Telegraph, which sometimes reflects official opinion, today notes that yesterday was the second anniversary of the day when Petain asked Germany for an armistice. 
The telegraph calls the move a triumph of miscalculation. You might be interested in knowing that girls of the British Women's Army, the ATS, are being trained as acetylene welders to work on guns, tanks, and army vehicles. The first batch of girls have begun the 10 weeks training course. They'll be sent to army depots to release skilled men for field service. This is John McVeigh in London, returning you to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. And to complete our roundup, here's a report on events at home from Earl Godwin in the newsroom in Washington. And good morning, folks. Here's a disreputable old bum comes in this morning, and he's the sugar shortage. He's hanging around again. He don't care what he tells you. He's a shortage one day and a glut the next. Well, last I heard was that we had the worst shortage in 20 years in sugar. Today, we hear there's so much sugar, actually, the sugar bosses have to let some of it out. Didn't I tell you? Sugar stamp number four, good for one pound, expires June 27. Stamp number five then becomes valid for two whole pounds of sugar up through July 25. Then stamp number six, also good for two pounds, lasts till August 22. It sounds good, but it's really transferring the storehouse filled with sugar to your own little housekeeping can on the shelf. You get no more in the end. The old sugar shortage is just as much of a raggedy bum as ever. All he does is to let you buy your family sweetening in advance, and then he'll laugh at you if you eat it up too fast. You know, I'm wondering if anyone takes time to study such stupendous things as the Anglo-Russian compact as to the state of things after the war in Europe. If they do, they'll wonder with me how in the world those two nations can get together without mentioning Japan, with whom England's at war and Russia's not, nor is it plain to me how those two nations can make the wonderful forward-looking Atlantic Charter and its hope for the peace and justice of the world after the war jibe with this Anglo-Russian agreement to police Europe first and get down to idealism second. That gives everybody concerned the same old status of big nation against smaller nation and the devil take the hindmost. And the United States is not involved and is watching these things very carefully. Our war story still seems to center on what the Japans are doing in the Aleutian Island. We don't hear a thing from our own side much, but you'll notice that the Canadians are viewing the Aleutian matter with well-chosen alarm. Canadian air forces are right up there now with ours because Canada is threatened. The Japanese have not been ousted. If they succeed in getting hold, they will have a base to embarrass us in any attack we might we may want to make from there toward Japan. They have a base they can use they can use toward Russia, with whom they're now at peace, but Japan is going to attack Russia one of these days, so the military men and others firmly believe. They put themselves nearer to us, the Japs do, and keep us from getting nearer to them by this maneuver at the tip end of the stepping stones in the Aleutians. It looks like <laughs> looks like the sales tax would not be in the tax bill for next year, but something must be inserted if they want to make up that $2 billion, which they're short right now. They are proposing taxes on pari-mutual betting and on nickel-in-the-slot machines and on freight shipments and express shipments. Industry says the way the bill proposes to tax industry, by the way, will cripple some of the plants and hinder the war, war effort. Fuel boss Ickes warns one and all to get their coal in now or face a winter where you cannot buy coal for love or money. Meantime, the House of Representatives finally rammed through that bill for a barge canal and pipeline across Florida that's presumed to help to get fuel oil to the east, but the way that thing is fought, I'd say the Senate would, wouldn't get through with it until after winter comes 
And that's all from Washington at this time. Thank you, Earl Godwin. And there you have a picture of this morning's news from Washington. And from Australia, as reported by Sidney Albright, from Stockholm, where your reporter was David Anderson, and from John McVeigh in London. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Mm -hmm.